Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you were in corporate worship, uh, you'll remember when our guest preacher, pastor, he said that, you know, the preacher teacher's nightmare is that when you preach that someone before you, you know, was to preach that text, that's something that you're terrified of as a preacher teacher. Uh, Secondly on that list would be if the one that goes before you has an accent. (laughs) So we got to hear that beautiful accent for 50 minutes. Unfortunately, that won't happen today in our time in Omega, but you can bear with me here as we work through. Just not like that one, though. (laughs) Just not as beautiful and elegant as that one. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me read our text and then we will begin to work our way through it. The beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." So if you were with us last time, as we really kicked off our study of the text of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, in chapter 1, he gives a report about the health of uh, the Thessalonian church. We know from the book of Acts and 1 and 2 Thessalonians that Thessalonica was a young a doctrinally sound, theologically rich church that had embraced the gospel of God that Paul mentioned here multiple times here in chapter 2. They had embraced the gospel of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Many, if not all of them, had at some point, according to chapter 1, turned from idols and the pagan practices of the day, and had embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So not only had they got the gospel right, 
They, they were correct in their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were also correct in their understanding of ecclesiology, how to do church. So not only did they believe the gospel, but they were doing church from a biblical perspective. They were an influential church. Remember, everything about them had sounded forth amongst the ancient world their embracement of the gospel, but then the fruit of the gospel as being shown in how they were doing church. Remember last time we looked at four indicators of a healthy church or four marks of a healthy church. The Thessalonians were a healthy church, and by God's grace, I think at Countryside, we can directly relate to uh, their spiritual health. Now, when we come to chapter 2, Paul switches from talking about the health or marks of the Thessalonian church to begin giving a report about his own ministry. So there's a major shift from chapter 1 to chapter 2. He goes from talking about how the Thessalonians were healthy as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he leaves that theme And then in chapter 2, he begins to talk about his own ministry, his gospel-centered ministry. Now, I I think we have to ask, why does he do that? Why does Paul begin to talk about his own ministry? Well, I think there's two reasons why. First, it, it is possible that Paul gives a report about his own ministry as a direct result of the persecution that he faced. As a direct result of the persecution he faced. If you remember back to the great chapters of Acts, of the book of Acts, specifically chapters 16 and 17, not only was the church of Philippi born out of persecution, but when he travels to Thessalonica, it is born out of persecution as well. So throughout Paul's lifetime, When he converted to Christ, a product or a fruit of that, as evidenced in Acts, was the fact that he consistently faced persecution. You could even make a a big case or an argument to say that in the book of Acts, it was persecution that caused the greatest expansion of the gospel. And you could tie that really to every one of Paul's missionary journeys. In the providence and sovereignty of God, he was traveling to and from different places, planting churches, and it was persecution that had ignited his movements. Now, this persecution, as you know, would have come from both Jews and Gentiles. We know from Acts 17 that Paul had a thriving synagogue ministry. Remember, when he got to Thessalonica, he spent at least three consecutive Weekends going into the synagogue on the Sabbath preaching the gospel. So he would have no doubt had received persecution from Jews. But at the same time, he dropped down into Macedonia, in particular Thessalonica, which was a melting pot of pagan religions and cults. So as he preached Christ and repentance from those pagan ways, he no doubt would have also faced persecution from the Gentiles. Now, what would this persecution have looked like? Well, of course, there would have been some physical elements to this. We saw 
that he faced a mob of people in Thessalonica, riots later on in Acts. But this persecution may have also consisted of lying about him, defaming him, attacking his character, uh, his integrity. And not only would the persecution be thrown at him at his personal abilities and character, but it also would have been about his message. Persecution would have been attacking the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ saves by faith and grace alone. They would have attacked Christ. They would attack the deity of Christ or maybe even the humanity of Christ. They would have said that he wasn't the Messiah and other things like that. So it's possible that in Thessalonians 2 that Paul gives a report about his ministry in response to everything that he was facing outside the church. A second reason why Paul gives a report about his own ministry is to show the Thessalonians that what they believed and what they were committed to wasn't a message that was contrived by Paul, but that it came from God himself, the gospel of God. In fact, you probably noticed that when we read through uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, three times Paul refers to the gospel not as his gospel, not as his good news, but the gospel of God. I mean, if you put yourself in the shoes of the Thessalonians, this man Paul, he comes to your town. He was just basically ran out of another town. He had just been in prison. He's preaching Christ, and then a mob comes, a riot comes, and boots him out of town. He hasn't made his way back to the Thessalonians yet. So in Paul's mind, he wants to make sure that the Thessalonians know that he is above reproach, which is critical for believers, but at the same time, that the gospel he preaches is not his message, it's not his gospel, it's not his way of salvation, but Christ's. Paul himself could never have changed the Thessalonians from idol worshipers to Christ worshipers. It's a powerful, supernatural message that we know as the gospel of God. So Paul defends his gospel ministry in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let me sort of give you the theme or the overarching view of what we see in these 12 verses. And it is that Paul describes four key marks of his own gospel ministry. Now why does he do this? Well, he does this to show the priority of the gospel and to defend his own personal integrity. Now, I think we need to make sure that we are oriented in our minds that this chapter and this message isn't merely just an indication or an understanding of Paul's ministry. In fact, we can look at every one of these points, and all of them can basically be applied to our own lives. Of course, we aren't, in the official sense, a capital A apostle, which simply means a messenger. We are not Christ official proxies like Paul was in the New Testament, but in a real sense, we are lowercase apostles. We are sent ones. We are messengers of the gospel, and we'll see that Paul's gospel-centered ministry, the four marks that he gives us are really four marks that ought to characterize our own lives. So let's begin looking at this report, Paul's report of his own gospel ministry. What's the first mark that he gives us? 
Well, he tells us that his gospel ministry is grounded in the triune God. That his gospel ministry was grounded in the triune God. Look at verse 1 with me. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you, and here's the first time, the gospel of God amid much opposition. Let's stop right there. Now, the first time Paul met the Thessalonians was after he had been persecuted and thrown into prison in Philippi. That's what Paul mentions again here in chapter 2, verse 1. He says that we suffered and we were mistreated in Philippi. But because of that persecution, under the providential invisible hand of God... He was moved to Thessalonica in order to, claim, in order to proclaim the gospel of God. The opposition and the persecution helped him get there. Now in verse 1, you can look at it with me again. Although that was the reason they ultimately made it to Thessalonica, Paul says our going there wasn't empty or in vain. Paul is simply saying, look, even though it was persecution that brought us to you, and even though it was persecution that took us away from you, that small window, that small visit, maybe uh, just a few weeks or a couple months, that small window of time wasn't in vain. You could also say it wasn't empty. You could also say it wasn't a failure. Well, why wasn't it a failure? We'll look at verse 2. Because it allowed Paul not to share a human message, but the gospel of God. It was that very gospel that had radically changed the idol worshipers of that day. They went from bowing the knee to various idols to bowing the knee to the Most High God. By the way, they were estranged from one another, and then in a moment's time, when they came under the power and conviction of the gospel message through the Spirit... It was those idol worshipers that instantaneously became brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul makes it clear that that wasn't by his doing. I think a great parallel passage, and I might refer to this a few times, but a great parallel passage to write down would be 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul, in a similar way, makes a defense that his message isn't based on human efforts or emotions, but the gospel of God. That's what he's doing here. My visit to you wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. Why? Because I came to you in power and in the Spirit of God. I gave you the gospel of God. Notice that phrase, or that expression, gospel of God. When Paul uses that, he is bringing into that expression not just God the Father, uh, but the entire Trinity. In other words, Paul's gospel... God's gospel, the gospel that we have embraced in this room, is a gospel that is born out of the triune God, one God and three persons. In fact, Paul has already been building his theology of the Trinity in this letter, going back to chapter 1. I think I've got it there on your handout. 
Paul has already mentioned God the Father in chapter 1, verse 1. He's already mentioned Christ the Son in chapter 1, verse 1. He's also mentioned uh, the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 6. So when you get to chapter 2 and Paul begins speaking of this gospel of God, what is in mind is the entire Trinity. The entire Trinity because it is the entire Trinity that unfolds the gospel. It was God the Father who decreed it or orchestrated it. It was God the Son who came into this world taking to himself human flesh who accomplished redemption on the cross. And it was the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, who has now applied the gospel to your life. If you have repented and believed in Christ, and most, if not all of you in this room have, you have experienced the triune God in your own personal life, each and every one of you. It was God that decreed that you would be saved. It was Christ who went to the cross in particular for you. He accomplished salvation. And then it was the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, who applied that redemption to your life. Isn't that an amazing reality? A bunch of wretched sinners, idol worshipers, pagans who have been brought together in the gospel. That's what we see in Thessalonica. But notice verse 2. Not only did Paul herald or proclaim the gospel of the triune God, but he did so in the boldness of God. Notice verse 2. It says that. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. The fact that Paul was able to minister to the Thessalonians the fact that he was able to walk into that idle cesspool was not based on his own power, was not based on his own courage or his own might. In fact, you can do a little research on what tradition says about Paul. Some have written and argued that he was less than five feet tall. He was a real scrawny guy. So he, him walking into Macedonia and the Thessalonica uh, city He's not much to look at. He doesn't have a lot of power. But he came in boldness in God and he preached the gospel of God no matter the opposition. Again, he's a testimony to the fact that no one's being saved by human efforts. No one's being saved by a human message, but by a divine one. So Paul's ministry was grounded in the triune God. And it needed to be in order for him to share the gospel in power to opposition everywhere. Well, there's a second mark of Paul's ministry that this text gives us. And not only was he grounded in the triune God, but he and his gospel was proclaimed with pure motives. It was proclaimed with pure motives. Look at verse 3. For our exhortation, and he's speaking here in the plural because he's including Sylvanus and Timothy. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak 
not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Let's stop there. So now that Paul has established the divine origin of his ministry and message, that it was from the triune God, he begins to set out on demonstrating his motives, his heart towards the Thessalonians and the fact that it was in accordance with the gospel that he preached. That's the message of verses three and four is not only did Paul preached the gospel, but that he preached it with pure motives. Now, it's interesting how he describes this, and he does this for several verses here. He does this by describing his motives in seven ways. Seven ways. And he does this from the negative, from the negative perspective. Let's look at the first way that he describes his motives. He says his motives are not from error. What what, what does this mean? Well, it believes that he taught the gospel message from the scripture. He preached the gospel message in truth. His theology was born out of the scripture. His doctrine was born out of the scripture. And in addition to that, remember Galatians 1 tells us that he had been personally taught from the Lord Jesus Christ for roughly three years. So if there was anyone in the ancient world that held sound doctrine and correct and right theology, it was the Apostle Paul. So his message did not come from error. Secondly, it did not come from impurity. It did not come from impurity. Well, what does this mean? It means that his integrity was intact. He lived an appropriate life. He lived above reproach. And you could summarize it this way. He lived in accordance with God's law. He lived in accordance with Scripture. A third way he explains his motives is by saying that he was not deceitful. He was not deceitful. What does he mean by this? He simply means he wasn't trying to trick anyone. He wasn't trying to be a magician. He wasn't trying to give one message and then do another. He came and boldly proclaimed the truth of God, and then his life characterized or reflected, is a better way to say it, his life reflected what he preached. He wasn't trying to manipulate the message. Now, we see a lot of that in the ancient world as it relates to false teachers, but how much more do we see the manipulation of the message in our culture and in our time today? Paul refused to manipulate the message. He refused to trick anyone. He preached the truth in love. Now, it's interesting, and you saw this in the text Paul then calls on both God and the Thessalonians to give testimony to the fact that his motives were pure. This is outstanding. Paul knew in his heart of hearts that he was a man of integrity. So he was confident in the fact that he could call on the Thessalonians 
and they would also affirm his integrity, but even more so, he was confident that he could call on God himself who examines and knows the heart to affirm his integrity. This doesn't mean Paul was prideful. This doesn't mean Paul was boastful. This does mean that Paul had a proper assessment of his life, that he was a wretched sinner saved by Christ and he was progressing in sanctification. Notice here the language in verse four. Paul had been approved by God. Uh, This word simply means to test. He had been tested by God. And God himself was approving of his ministry. If you look at the verb tense of that word approved, it's in the perfect tense, which tells us that God over and over and over approved of Paul's ministry. Why? Because he lived above reproach. I mean, you can think of your own life, and I've had to consider my own. Do we consistently live above reproach where God would say of your life that he approves over and over and over as it relates to your conduct? That's what Paul is saying here, that God was approving of his his motives. You see, when Paul was preaching and teaching the gospel of God, in reality, in both what he preached and how he lived, he only had an audience of one. That was Paul's mindset and perspective. I will preach Christ because I'm wanting to please God, and I will live for Christ because I'm only trying to please God. If that would be our goal, we would be like Paul, where we would be living consistently above reproach and with integrity. So not only was his message not deceitful, fourthly, it was not man-pleasing. He was not a man-pleaser. His goal, his aim, his desire, his ambition was to please God. His motivation for ministry wasn't to please man, but to preach Christ. He had a love for the local church and his insatiable desire to please God flowed out of that. Remember, Paul writes in Galatians chapter one, look, if, if you want to be a follower, a disciple of Christ, you cannot be a man pleaser. You cannot seek to please men. You cannot seek to receive glory from men, but of God. Now, Paul continues to explain his motives on into verse five and six. So you follow along as I read verses five and six. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So Paul continues to lay out ways in which his motives are pure. A fifth one that we see in verse 5 is that he did not come with flattering speech. He did not come with flattering speech. In the ancient world, here's what some historians said about flattery. Flattery should be shunned, 
Flattery corrupts morals. And flattery is characteristic of charlatans. So in the ancient world, flattery or flattering speech was looked down upon. Paul says, my message, my ministry, it's not with flattering speech. It's not meant to come off the tongue smoothly or eloquently. He goes on to say, not only is it not with flattery, but it doesn't come with greed. Paul's message did not come with greed. He wasn't a greedy man. His gospel ministry was never fueled by greed. He never had that angle. He never had that bent. He never had that motive. This doesn't necessarily just refer to money, although that's included, but Paul never preached the gospel for money. He never preached the gospel for fame. He never preached the gospel for an abundance of goods, stuff, or just things in general. He was never about that. In fact, I think that's one of the main points he makes with the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians is the fact that he worked hard And the Thessalonians needed to hear that because they often, and this was sort of one of their slip-ups that you find in the letter, the Thessalonians often had a great view and an understanding of the second coming of Christ and his return, but in light of that reality, there were times where they became idle and they didn't work hard. So Paul's demonstrating on many levels, look, I'm not here for greed, but at the same time, I'm going to show you what it's like to work hard. Not even necessarily related to just preaching the gospel, but just in everyday life. Paul worked hard, and he tells the Thessalonians to work hard as, as well. And we'll see that throughout our study. So he was not greedy, and he was also not self-glorifying. He was not self-glorifying. That's in verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men. Doxology is that Greek word. Nor did we receive doxology or praise from men, either from you, Thessalonians, or from other people. Look, we don't want fame. I don't want it. Sylvanus doesn't want it. Timothy doesn't want it. We just want to preach Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. And then I love what he adds here, and this is great. Look at the end of verse six. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So in reality, Paul could have come on the scene and he could have been throwing around his resume. Oh, I am an apostle of Christ. Did you hear me? I am an apostle of Christ. Not only have I seen the resurrected Christ, Acts chapter nine, not only... Have I been hand-selected by Christ himself as an apostle, Acts chapter 9? I can perform miracles. I can raise the dead. I can make people walk. I, I can make people see, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I can perform signs and wonders just like Moses. Now, Paul could have come on the scene and he could have thrown around his resume and asserted his authority that way. I am an apostle, do what I say. Of course, that would 
have been completely unbiblical. Paul is just sort of laying out his title and saying, look, I could have acted this way, but I haven't. I've come to you and I have shown you how pure I am in my motives as I proclaim the gospel of the triune God. It's, it's really an, it's an amazing uh, chapter into the heart of the Apostle Paul. He, he wasn't a dictator. In fact, he elsewhere says he's not worthy to be called an apostle. He's the least of all the saints. He's the chief of all sinners. I mean, Paul had a right view of himself, and he was showing that to the Thessalonians. It wasn't a power play. It wasn't a dictatorship. In fact, in this third mark of Paul's ministry, he, he goes on to really show his affections for the Thessalonians uh, by showing that his gospel ministry was permeated with familial affections permeated with familial affections. And I think I've got some of the verses wrong there on the handout. Just show me some grace and forgiveness, please. <laughs> some of Paul's affections here that we'll see in verses five through eight. This should be seven through eight. So let's look at verse seven. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, there it is again, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. So then rather being a dictator or bringing a huge power play into Thessalonica, Paul describes his ministry as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. Now, Paul isn't having a gender crisis here like we see in our culture today, but rather he's drawing on the loving and caring intimate relationship that a mother has towards her children. This is really the best way for Paul to express his true love and affections for the Thessalonians, like a mother tenderly caring for her own children. If you look at verse eight, Paul further describes this familial affection by saying that he had so fond an affection for them. How strong was Paul's affection? Look at verse eight again. That he was well pleased, he was excited, he was thrilled to not only impart the gospel, which is the number one priority, by the way, it's always a promotion of the gospel, but he was thrilled to give them his, what? His whole life. His whole life. One author says, the true missionary or the true evangelist or we could say the true Christian is not someone specialized in the delivery of the message, but someone whose whole being is communicated to his hearers. Look, the gospel that we proclaim, we, we must do that, but it can't be detached from the affections that we have for the people we are either sharing the gospel with for the first time 
or the people that we are doing life with in the local church. I think it's easy in a church like Countryside where there is such a primary and massive focus on the teaching and the preaching of God's Word and theology and doctrine and exposition, it's easy for us to sort of slip into the mindset that we can come and grow in our knowledge of the Word of God, which we should, and we can increase in our understanding of uh, biblical doctrines and theology, but then to detach that from just loving the people that you were sitting with at your table. Like Paul, he preached the gospel and he had fond affections and love for them as well, like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. He had the complete theological package. He gave his life for the preaching of the gospel, and he gave his life for the people of the gospel. Notice the end of verse 8. They had become very dear, the Thessalonians, to Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, that word dear is where we get the word beloved. He's basically saying, you became beloved to us. Well, there's a fourth and final mark of Paul's gospel ministry. And it is that it was conducted with moral and ethical integrity. It was conducted with moral and ethical integrity. Let's pick up in verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There it is the third time. You are witnesses, and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would, love, as a father would his own children. So you can see that familial affection coming out there again at the end of verse 11, verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul has already made known to the Thessalonians the true gospel that he preached and that he preached it with pure motives. He's also expressed his clear love and affections for them. He loves them like a family and he draws on two word pictures like a mother and a father we've just seen. So now he describes a fourth mark of his ministry. And again, this is a mark of our ministry in our lives as well. One that is focused on daily living, how you live. So Paul does this by describing his moral and ethical integrity in three ways. Now, the first one is that he excelled in working hard. You find that in verse 9. He excelled in working hard. You see, Paul was no slouch. He was no slacker. He's not that old sluggard from the book of Proverbs. He was not lazy. He was a hard-working man. You can see the language used here. Verse 9, labor and hardship. That word labor or toil, it just means to work to exhaustion, fatigue. 
Uh, the same thing is essentially true with the word hardship. It means exhausting labor. Now, of course, Paul's not advocating that on Saturday mornings you just work until you go to the hospital. That's, that's not the point. Paul's saying as a way of life, work hard. Exhaust yourself for the gospel. That's priority number one. But even in the things that you were associated with in your daily life, work hard at it. And I think the language here tells us that Paul, he was up before the sun came up, so no sleeping in. That's a hard dogmatic rule he's giving us here. I'm kidding. That's not true. But Paul, he was up before the sun came up, beginning before the day basically started, and he worked throughout the day until the sun went down. Acts 18 tells us that he was in the tent-making business. You know this. But along with that, this probably meant that he was also in uh, the leather business. So I'm sure, based on Paul's intellect and based on his ability, he was probably a jack of all trades. So he would probably find himself useful wherever he went. But when he was with the Thessalonians, he made it his aim to work hard, both day and night. And he did this because he wanted to show great work ethic, which we all should, but he also wanted to support himself to demonstrate that he wasn't in gospel ministry for the money. And we're told from 1 Timothy 5 that it is right for those who are in official gospel ministry to get paid, but Paul says, I'm going to show you, Thessalonians, that not only do I love the gospel and you, but I'm going to work for a living, and I'm going to work hard. Now, of course, there's times in Paul's ministry where he didn't have to rely on working and earning a wage and money, but there were times where he did, and the Thessalonian church and that situation was an example of that. But look at verse 9. Why did he work? He didn't want to burden any of them. He didn't want to take advantage of them. He didn't want to put any strain on their finances. So Paul preached the gospel, and at the same time, he just worked hard. So Paul's moral and ethical integrity came out by his excelling and working hard. There's a second way he showed this. He excelled in godly character. He excelled in godly character. Look at verse 10. And notice the three terms that Paul uses to describe his character. Devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. Uh, devoutly just means set apart. You know, his character was just set apart. He would just bleed Christ. He also lived uprightly. This just means living and behaving in accordance with God's law, God's word. And he lived blamelessly. He was just above reproach. Paul could honestly say that his character was excellent. Not perfect, but excellent. And again... He even calls on two witnesses to verify this. Look at verse 10. He says that both God and the Thessalonians knew that he acted blamelessly. He was really a man of integrity. 
And he explains that there in verse 10. He lived godly. Well, there's a third and final way that his moral and ethical integrity was shown. It's that he also excelled in motivating others. He excelled in motivating others. This is what our integrity must do. This is what our morals and our ethics and the way that we live in this life as Christians must do. It ought to, by default, encourage others to be more like Christ. Notice Paul uses three more terms here on how to motivate others. He exhorted them. He appealed to them. He encouraged them. He cheered them on. And then lastly, he implored them. He pleaded with them. He insisted with them. And that's my encouragement for us. Again, I think the application here is so pertinent for our own lives. We need to urge our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to live for the gospel. We need to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ, cheer them on. I mean, we are on the same team, more so we're in the same family. And we also need to implore one another, plead, insist that we live godly. Now, why? Why in the first 11 verses does Paul take us through his gospel ministry? Why does he do that? Well, here it is in verse 12. Look at it with me. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, as Paul rehearses his gospel-centered ministry, it isn't merely just to make himself known as it relates to his apostolic calling and duty. It, it is that to one degree. He wants them to know that he's ministry focused and he's living above reproach. But Paul wants to let them know these things in order to motivate them to moral and ethical excellency according to the standards revealed in God's precious word. That we would be worthy of God who has called us into his own kingdom and glory. And notice how Paul describes that at the beginning of verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy. We, we, we sort of lose that, and you know this, we, we sort of lose the idea of walking because of this, the ease of being able uh, to use various modes of transportation in our lives. Cars, airplanes, whatever it may be. But it's that steady walk that Paul describes here. It's like Paul was walking from place to place and city to city and church to church in the ancient world. It's as if every step that he took, he would constantly say to himself, let me walk in a manner that was worthy of God. That's the idea here. Paul is compelling us, encouraging us, exhorting us just to walk faithfully. Just to walk faithfully. And to walk faithfully, what's the, what's the end point? How long are we supposed to walk faithfully? We'll look at the end of verse 12. 
until God calls you into his kingdom and glory. In other words, we walk faithfully until God calls us home or until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. One commentator says, the future hope, the anticipation of the coming kingdom and glory of God is presented in 1 Thessalonians as a motivation for perseverance in the Christian life. May God help us live out these four marks of Paul's gospel-centered ministry. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for its truth, its accuracy, and the fact that it is living and active. And that although Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, the truths that he unfolds about his own gospel ministry are truths that can be directly applied to our own hearts and our own lives today. And that is my prayer for us here in Omega this morning is that we will proclaim the excellencies of Christ in the gospel, that we will have love and affection for one another in this room and at this church, and that we will live in light of the return of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. That's in his name we pray. Amen.